Section 11 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 11. On Sunday, April the 15th, being Easter Day, after solemn worship in St. Paul's Church, I found him alone. Dr. Scott of the Commons came in. He talked of its having been said that Addison wrote some of his best papers in the Spectator when warm with wine. Footnote. Johnson thus describes Addison's familiar day on the authority of Pope. He studied all morning, then dined at a tavern, and went afterwards to Button's coffee-house. From the coffee-house he went again to a tavern, where he often sat late, and drank too much wine. Spence adds, on the authority of Pope, that Addison passed each day alike, and much in the manner that Dryden did. Dryden employed his mornings in writing, dined en famille, and then went to Wills's. Only he came home earlier a nights. End footnote. Dr. Johnson did not seem willing to admit this. Dr. Scott, as a confirmation of it, related that Blackstone, a sober man, composed his commentaries with a bottle of port before him, and found his mind invigorated and supported in the fatigue of his great work by a temperate use of it. Footnote. Mr. Foss says of Blackstone, Ere he had been long on the bench, he experienced the bad effects of the studious habits in which he had injudiciously indulged in his early life, and of his neglect to take the necessary amount of exercise, to which he was specially averse. He died at the age of fifty-six. He suffered greatly from his corpulence. His portrait in the Bodleian shows that he was a very fat man. Malone says that Scott, afterwards Lord Stowell, wrote to Blackstone's family to apologise for Boswell's anecdote. Scott would not have thought any the worse of Blackstone for his bottle of port. Both he and his brother, the Chancellor, took a great deal of it. Lord Eldon liked plain port. The stronger, the better. Somebody asked him whether Lord Stowell took much exercise. None, he said, but the exercise of eating and drinking. Yet both men got through a vast deal of hard work, and died, Eldon at the age of eighty-six, and Stoll of ninety. End of footnote. I told him that in a company where I had lately been, a desire was expressed to know his authority for the shocking story of Addison sending an execution into Steele's house. Sir, said he, it is generally known it is known to all who are acquainted with the literary history of that period. It is as well known as that he wrote Cato. 
Mr. Thomas Sheridan once defended Addison to me by alleging that he did it in order to cover Steele's goods from other creditors who were going to seize them. We talked of the difference between the mode of education at Oxford and that in those colleges where instruction is chiefly conveyed by lectures. Johnson. Lectures were once useful, but now, when all can read, and books are so numerous, lectures are unnecessary. If your attention fails and you miss a part of a lecture, it is lost. You cannot go back as you do upon a book. Dr. Scott agreed with him. But yet, said I, Dr. Scott, you yourself gave lectures at Oxford. He smiled. You laughed, then I said, at those who came to you. Footnote. William Scott was a tutor of University College at the age of nineteen. He held the office for ten years to 1775. He wrote to his father in 1772 about his younger brother John, afterwards Lord Eldon, who had just made a runaway match. The business in which I am engaged is so extremely disagreeable in itself and so destructive to health if carried on with such success as can render it at all considerable in point of profit that I do not wonder at his unwillingness to succeed me in it. End of footnote. Dr. Scott left us and soon afterwards we went to dinner. Our company consisted of Mrs. Williams, Mrs. Desmoulins, Mr. Levet, Mr. Allen the printer, and Mrs. Hall, sister of the Reverend Mr. John Wesley, and resembling him, as I thought, both in figure and manner. Footnote. The account of her marriage given by John Wesley in a letter to his brother-in-law, Mr. Hall, is curious. He wrote on December the 22nd, 1747, More than twelve years ago you told me God had revealed it to you that you should marry my youngest sister. You asked and gained her consent. In a few days you had a counter-revelation that you was not to marry her but her sister. This last error was far worse than the first but you was not quite above conviction, so in spite of her poor astonished parents, of her brothers, of all your vows and promises, you shortly after jilted the younger and married the elder sister. Mrs. Hall suffered greatly for marrying a wretch who had so cruelly treated her own sister. End of footnote. Johnson produced now for the first time some handsome silver salvers, which he told me he had bought fourteen years ago, so it was a great day. I was not a little amused by observing Allen perpetually struggling to talk in the manner of Johnson, like the little frog in the fable blowing himself up to resemble the stately ox. I mentioned a kind of religious Robin Hood society which met every Sunday evening at Coachmaker's Hall for free debate. Footnote. The original Robin Hood 
was a debating society which met near Temple Bar. Some twenty years before this time Goldsmith belonged to it, and it was said Burke. The president was a baker by trade. Goldsmith, after hearing him give utterance to a train of strong and ingenious reasoning, exclaimed to Derrick, That man was meant by nature for a Lord Chancellor. Derrick replied, No, no, not so high. He is only intended for Master of the Rolls. Fielding, in 1752, in the Covent Garden Journal, numbers 8 and 9, takes off this society and the baker. A fragment of a report of their discussions, which he pretends to have discovered, begins thus. This evening the question at the Robin Hood was whether religion was of any use to a society. Bacon before me, Thomas Whitebread Baker. Horace Walpole, in 1764, wrote of the visit of a French gentleman to England. He has seen Jews, Quakers, Mr. Pitt, the Royal Society, the Robin Hood, Lord Chief Justice Pratt, the arts and sciences, etc. Romilly, in a letter dated May the 22nd, 1781, says that during the past winter several of these Sunday religious debating societies had been established. The auditors, he was assured, were mostly weak, well-meaning people who were inclined to Methodism. But among the speakers were some designing villains and a few coxcombs with more wit than understanding. Nothing, he continues, could raise up panegyrists of these societies but what has lately happened an attempt to suppress them. The Solicitor General has brought a bill into Parliament for this purpose. The bill is drawn artfully enough for as these societies are held on Sundays and people pay for admittance, he has joined them with a famous tea-drinking house, Carlisle House, involving them both in the same fate, and entitling his bill, A Bill to Regulate Certain Abuses and Profanations of the Lord's Day. The bill was carried on a division, none being found among the nose, but the two tellers. The penalties for holding a meeting were two hundred pounds for the master of the house, one hundred pounds for the moderator of the meeting, and fifty pounds for each of the servants at the door. End of footnote. And that the subject for this night was the text which relates with other miracles which happened at our Saviour's death, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Mrs. Hall said it was a very curious subject, and she should like to hear it discussed. Johnson, somewhat warmly, One would not go to such a place to hear it. One would not be seen in such a place to give countenance to such a meeting. I, however, resolved that I would go. But, sir, said she to Johnson, I should like to hear you discuss it. 
he seemed reluctant to engage in it she talked of the resurrection of the human race in general and maintained that we shall be raised with the same bodies johnson nay madam we see that it is not to be the same body for the scriptures use the illustration of grain sown but we know that the grain which grows is not the same with what is sown you cannot suppose that we shall rise with a diseased body it is enough if there be such a sameness as to distinguish identity of person she seemed desirous of knowing more but he left the question in obscurity of apparitions he observed a total disbelief of them is adverse to the opinion of the existence of the soul between death and the last day the question simply is whether departed spirits ever have the power of making themselves perceptible to us a man who thinks he has seen an apparition can only be convinced himself his authority will not convince another and his conviction if rational must be founded on being told something which cannot be known but by supernatural means footnote as this subject frequently recurs in these volumes the reader may be led erroneously to suppose that dr johnson was so fond of such discussions as frequently to introduce them but the truth is that the author himself delighted in talking concerning ghosts and what he has frequently denominated the mysterious and therefore took every opportunity of leading johnson to converse on such subjects malone End of footnote. he mentioned a thing as not unfrequent of which i had never heard before being called that is hearing one's name pronounced by the voice of a known person at a great distance far beyond the possibility of being reached by any sound uttered by human organs an acquaintance on whose veracity i can depend told me that walking home one evening to kilmarnock he heard himself called from a wood by the voice of a brother who had gone to america and the next packet brought accounts of that brother's death Macbean asserted that this inexplicable calling was a thing very well known. Footnote. Macbean is not in Boswell's list of guests, but in the Pembroke College manuscripts there is the following entry on Monday, April the 16th. Yesterday at dinner were Mrs. Hall, Mr. Levett, Macbean, Boswell, Allen. Time passed in talk after dinner at seven i went with mrs hall to church and came back to tea End of footnote. dr johnson said that one day at oxford as he was turning the key of his chamber he heard his mother distinctly call sam she was then at lichfield but nothing ensued footnote. mrs piozzi records that he said a long time after my poor mother's death i heard her voice call sam she is so inaccurate that most likely this is merely her version of the story that boswell has recorded above <laughs>
Lord Macaulay made more of this story of the voice than it could well bear. Under the influence of his disease, his senses became morbidly torpid and his imagination morbidly active. At one time he would stand poring on the town clock without being able to tell the hour. At another he would distinctly hear his mother, who was many miles off, calling him by his name. But this was not the worst. End of footnote. This phenomenon is, I think, as wonderful as any other mysterious fact, which many people are very slow to believe, or rather, indeed, reject with an obstinate contempt. Some time after this, upon his making a remark which escaped my attention, Mrs. Williams and Mrs. Hall were both together striving to answer him. He grew angry and called out loudly, Nay, when you both speak at once, it is intolerable. But checking himself and softening, he said, This one may say, though you are ladies. Then he brightened into gay humour and addressed them in the words of one of the songs in the beggar's opera. But two at a time there's no mortal can bear. Footnote. One wife is too much for most husbands to bear, but two at a time there's no mortal can bear. Act three, scene four, end of footnote. What, sir, said I, are you going to turn Captain Macheath? There was something as pleasantly ludicrous in this scene as can be imagined. The contrast between Macheath, Polly and Lucy, and Dr. Samuel Johnson, blind, peevish Mrs. Williams, and lean, lank, preaching Mrs. Hall was exquisite. I stole away to Coachmaker's Hall and heard the difficult text of which we had talked discussed with great decency and some intelligence by several speakers. There was a difference of opinion as to the appearance of ghosts in modern times, though the arguments for it supported by Mr. Addison's authority preponderated. Footnote. I think a person who is terrified with the imagination of ghosts and spectres much more reasonable than one who, contrary to the reports of all historians, sacred and profane, ancient and modern, and to the traditions of all nations, thinks the appearance of spirits fabulous and groundless. End of footnote. The immediate subject of debate was embarrassed by the bodies of the saints having been said to rise, and by the question, what became of them afterwards? Did they return again to their graves, or were they translated to heaven? Only one evangelist mentions the fact, and the commentators whom I have looked at do not make the passage clear. There is, however, no occasion for our understanding it farther than to know that it was one of the extraordinary manifestations of divine power which accompanied the most important event that ever happened. On Friday, April the 20th, I spent with him one of the happiest days that I remember to have enjoyed in the whole course of my life. Mrs. Garrick 
whose grief for the loss of her husband was i believe as sincere as wounded affection and admiration could produce had this day for the first time since his death a select party of his friends to dine with her footnote garrick died on january the twentieth seventeen seventy nine end of footnote the company was miss hannah moore who lived with her and whom she called her chaplain footnote garrick called her nine the nine muses nine he said you are a sunday woman End of footnote. mrs boscowen mrs elizabeth carter sir joshua reynolds dr burney dr johnson and myself we found ourselves very elegantly entertained at her house in the adelphi where i have passed many a pleasing hour with him who gladdened life footnote boswell is quoting from johnson's eulogium on garrick in his life of edmund smith End of footnote. she looked well talked of her husband with complacency and while she cast her eyes on his portrait which hung over the chimney-piece said that death was now the most agreeable object to her footnote. how fond she and her husband had been is shown in a letter in which in answer to an invitation he says as i have not left mrs garrick one day since we were married near twenty-eight years i cannot now leave her garrick's widow is buried with him she survived him forty-three years a little bowed down old woman who went about leaning on a gold-headed cane dressed in deep widow's mourning and always talking of her dear davy End of footnote. the very semblance of david garrick was cheering mr beauclerc with happy propriety inscribed under that fine portrait of him which by lady diana's kindness is now the property of my friend mr langton the following passage from his beloved shakespeare a merrier man within the limit of becoming mirth i never spent an hour's talk withal his eye begets occasion for his wit for every object that the one doth catch the other turns to a mirth-moving jest which his fair tongue conceits expositor delivers in such apt and gracious words that aged ears play truant at his tales and younger hearings are quite ravished so sweet and voluble is his discourse we were all in fine spirits and i whispered to mrs boscowen i believe this is as much as can be made of life in addition to a splendid entertainment we were regaled with lichfield ale which had a peculiar appropriated value sir joshua and dr burney and i drank cordially of it to dr johnson's health and though he would not join us he as cordially answered gentlemen i wish you all as well as you do me the general effect of this day dwells upon my mind in fond remembrance 
but i do not find much conversation recorded what i have preserved shall be faithfully given one of the company mentioned mr thomas hollis the strenuous whig who used to send over europe presents of democratical books with their boards stamped with daggers and caps of liberty mrs carter said he was a bad man he used to talk uncharitably johnson oh, oh, madam who is the worse for being talked of uncharitably besides he was a dull poor creature as ever lived and i believe he would not have done harm to a man whom he knew to be of very opposite principles to his own i remember once at the society of arts when an advertisement was to be drawn up and he pointed me out as the man who could do it best this you will observe was kindness to me i however slipped away and escaped it mrs carter having said of the same person i doubt he was an atheist footnote horace walpole describes hollis as a most excellent man a most immaculate weak but as simple a poor soul as ever existed except his editor who has given extracts from the good creature's diary that are very near as anile as ashmole's there are thanks to god for reaching every birthday and thanks to heaven for her majesty's being delivered of a third or fourth prince and god send he may prove a good man dr franklin wrote much more highly of him speaking of what he had done he said it is prodigious the quantity of good that may be done by one man if you will make a business of it End of footnote. johnson i don't know that he might perhaps have become one if he had had time to ripen smiling he might have exuberated into an atheist sir joshua reynolds praised mudge's sermons johnson mudge's sermons are good but not practical he grasps more sense than he can hold he takes more corn than he can make into meal he opens a wide prospect but it is so distant it is indistinct i love blair's sermons though the dog is a scotchman and a presbyterian and everything he should not be i was the first to praise them such was my candour smiling mrs boscowan such his great merit to get the better of all your prejudices johnson why madam let us compound the matter let us ascribe it to my candour and his merit in the evening we had a large company in the drawing-room several ladies the bishop of killaloe dr percy mr chamberlain of the treasury etc etc footnote on april the sixth of the next year this gentleman when secretary of the treasury destroyed himself overwhelmed just as cooper had been by the sense of the responsibility of an office which had been thrust upon him End of footnote. somebody said 
the life of a mere literary man could not be very entertaining johnson but it certainly may this is a remark which has been made and repeated without justice why should the life of a literary man be less entertaining than the life of any other man are there not as interesting varieties in such a life as a literary life it may be very entertaining Footnote. it is commonly supposed that the uniformity of a studious life affords no matter for a narration but the truth is that of the most studious life a great part passes without study an author partakes of the common condition of humanity he is born and married like another man he has hopes and fears expectations and disappointments griefs and joys and friends and enemies like a courtier or a statesman nor can i conceive why his affairs should not excite curiosity as much as the whisper of a drawing-room or the factions of a camp End of footnote. Boswell. but it must be better surely when it is diversified with a little active variety such as his having gone to jamaica or his having gone to the hebrides johnson was not displeased at this talking of a very respectable author he told us a curious circumstance in his life which was that he had married a printer's devil reynolds a printer's devil sir why i thought a printer's devil was a creature with a black face and in rags johnson yes sir but i suppose he had her face washed and put clean clothes on her then looking very serious and very earnest and she did not disgrace him the woman had a bottom of good sense the word bottom thus introduced was so ludicrous when contrasted with his gravity that most of us could not forbear tittering and laughing though i recollect that the bishop of killaloe kept his countenance with perfect steadiness while miss hannah moore slyly hid her face behind a lady's back who sat on the same settee with her his pride could not bear that any expression of his should excite ridicule when he did not intend it he therefore resolved to assume and exercise despotic power glanced sternly around and called out in a strong tone where's the merriment then collecting himself and looking awful to make us feel how he could impose restraint and as it were searching his mind for a still more ludicrous word he slowly pronounced i say the woman was fundamentally sensible as if he had said hear this now and laugh if you dare we all sat composed as at a funeral footnote hannah moore wrote at this day i accuse dr johnson of not having done justice to the allegro and penseroso he spoke disparagingly of both i praised lycidas which he absolutely abused adding if milton had not written the paradise lost he would have only ranked among the minor poets he was a phidias that could cut a colossus out of a rock 
and could not cut heads out of cherry stones. The Allegro and Penseroso Johnson described as two noble efforts of imagination. Of Lysidas he wrote, Surely no man could have fancied that he read it with pleasure had he not known the author. End of footnote. He and I walked away together. We stopped a little while by the rails of the Adelphi, looking on the Thames, and I said to him with some emotion that I was now thinking of two friends we had lost who once lived in the buildings behind us, Beauclerc and Garrick. Aye, sir, said he tenderly, and two such friends as cannot be supplied. Footnote. Murphy says, Shortly after Garrick's death, Johnson was told in a large company, You are recent from the lives of the poets. Why not add your friend Garrick to the number? Johnson's answer was, I do not like to be officious, but if Mrs. Garrick will desire me to do it, I should be very willing to pay that last tribute to the memory of a man I loved. Murphy adds that he himself took care that Mrs. Garrick was informed of what Johnson had said, but that no answer was ever received. End of footnote. For some time after this day I did not see him very often, and of the conversation which I did enjoy, I am sorry to find that I have preserved but little. I was at this time engaged in a variety of other matters which required exertion and assiduity, and necessarily occupied almost all my time. End of section 11.